Thank you for your questions, topics to give me something to talk about. <laughs> that's, that's useful for you. Yeah. A couple here. I'll just try. I can't, you know, really cover more than a couple of time. But please do keep bringing them in, and I can kind of, you know, put them together and deal with them as best I can. First one is about qigong. Qigong is very much appreciated. Could you enlarge on its benefits from a Buddhist perspective? Do you consider a move to teaching Qigong at earlier ages could eventually bring about a more introspective and thoughtful state of mind in the secular society? <laughs> well, <laughs> nice idea. And there's another one. You mentioned your talk today about the Buddha instructing us to gladden our mind. How is this done? Is it anything to do with Recollections such as re- recollecting the Buddha, recollecting our past deeds of merit, recollecting our, recollecting our virtue, and rec- recollecting the devas. So, a couple on the usefulness of qigong and gladdening the mind. Mm. <clears throat> so, I think I'll perhaps start just talking about gladdening the mind. As there's a, you know, Pomoja, Abhi Pomoja. Pomoja is the word for glad, gladdening, and uh, sometimes this is strength and Abhi Pomoja, like really fully or deeply or, or gladdening the mind in a rather uh, higher way. Yeah. So Pomoja can be associated with, you know, gladdening the mind, walking through the countryside on a pleasant day, the mind is gladdened. Yeah. So this would be Pomoja. Uh, we also get gladness through <clears throat> acts of good good deeds, and if you so it's you know you recollect good deeds that you've done, uh, not some kind of egotistical way, but just the sense of the, the loveliness of generosity. How it's a really nice thing to do to to feel makes you feel happy and uh, kindness and compassion and so forth. Um, you know these are not kind of just duties or obligations but they are they're expressions of heart and the way we keep this heart channel open it does give us a source of of gladness and uh, you know it, it's a so the first one is 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 kind of a you know a very basic level of gladness dependent upon you know uh, pleasant sensory conditions so it's not it's okay, but it's not uh, going to last one as long as gladness through the through good deeds. Mm. But, yeah. And it's important to you know consider the the that intuition, that impulse that wants to do good, you know, uh, as a as a kind of love quality where we. Something in us wants to move out for the welfare of others. It's a very uh, fundamental human uh, instinct, and sometimes we just don't know how to do that. We feel embarrassed, or we feel we haven't really got anything good to offer anyway. You know, so these these, these nervousness and self views tend to block that. Uh, well, you know, I don't want to be a nuisance. I don't want to impose upon you by being nice to you. <laughs> you know, I don't intrude upon your privacy. It's a very probably English thing. Um, you know, 
And you, you certainly, if you go to to Asia, you get you, you see in the Buddhist cultures of Asia, they don't mind intruding on you with goodness. They're quite happy to do that, and they don't have they don't hold back. They just really giggle and enjoy it. It's nice to see. They're not doing. They're not. They're not good in a solemn way. They're good in a, a way because they know it makes them feel good. It makes you feel good, and happiness is good. Why not? Whereas uh, sometimes, particularly, you know. From an intellectual perspective, we tend to think happiness has been a bit sort of infantile, you know. <laughs> you want clear ideas and this sort of stuff, and happiness is, you know. But uh, it is very much encouraged in, in the Buddha's teachings. Pomoja. And the fundamental way of Pomoja is, uh, is around morality and good karma. So when we uh, and so, you know, every day, if you just spend some time just remembering uh, the good deed, the little good deeds that were done to you, the good deeds that you did, or even the bad things you could have done that you didn't do. <laughs> wow, that was nice, you know, I didn't do that. Thank goodness. Got a great gratefulness around that. <laughs> and it does keep the sense of doing good is much more than just an idea or a moral imperative. It actually makes you feel good. You feel clearer, you feel cleaner, and you feel, you know, uh, you feel connected to the world. This is the way we can connect to each other, isn't it? We belong, we feel, you know. And, so, and then it, it brings us up the beauty of good karma. Good karma is called bright karma. It makes you feel bright. So the, you know, the Buddha said, this is, this is approximate uh, condition for liberation, pomoja. So if the mind is, is gladdened, then um, it's much easier to, to meditate, you know, to get into your body because your mind is gladdened. It's not kind of gloomy, restless. It's in a good condition to, to meditate. So something when we share merit, for example, Part of that is that sense of just some way in which we can do good, even just as in our minds, just remembering people, may they be well, whatever I've done, may somehow or another the the goodness of that be felt. If you bear that in mind, that recollection, then it means you're actually attuned to the possibility of it. So sometimes people say, well, you know, I've been sharing merit to so-and-so, so-and-so, is it really going to do them any good? Well, I don't know. But certainly if you keep thinking of them in that way, the next time you see them, you'll probably be primed to do something good for them, won't you? Rather than that sourpuss who never does this, that and the other. You think of them as, well, you know, she's a bit difficult, but may she be well. Then the next time you see them, you're going to, you know, you come up with something a bit more sympathetic. So I have people on my sharing merits list. When you get on my sharing merit list, you know you've really done bad. (laughs) You know, I'm going to share merit with you. (laughs) But you can do it for the people you really admire and you think, well, I haven't got anything to offer them anyway. You can have that idea. Well, that dampens you down, doesn't it? Personally, I appreciate any any act of any gesture of kindness. I appreciate it. I'm not above it all. <laughs> I assure you. So it's not all. You know, I haven't got anything to offer. 
so that there's that gladness. Uh, we also get uh, pomoja gladness from, I find, from our relationship to the sacred. You know, uh, wonderful when you consider the terrible realms that people's minds can dwell in of uh, addiction and greed and violence and mistrust and continual conniving and scheming and double dealing and, you know, and actually, wow, what a mess to be in that. So when we can come into some sort of scenario or community or other people where we have the feeling of what's really uplifted is, is kindness, gentleness, virtue, and, and really feeling the benefit of that and recognize it's something that's been going on for thousands of years. You know, it's not even just a Buddhist thing. But this uh, sense of something is tuned into what we call the sacred, which means it's, it's the, it covers the widest range of consciousness. The sacred is that which can comprehend and be with um, the highest to the lowest. You know, and you say the lowest, you, you experience it through a sense of compassion and, and uh, for, for people in those dark states of mind. So that's a sacred way to relate, isn't it? Rather than condemning. Mm-hmm. So when we get this sense of the mind can, can be like that, uh, then, uh, then this is a source of joy. You know, mind is not uh, opinionated or, or conceited or dismissive mm-hmm. or, or things like that. So these are the, often the ways we, we, uh, we deliberately recollect to develop that. And this is a useful way of thinking. So you get the idea in your mind, you think it slowly and try to really get what it feels like. You think of another person, you know, may they be well. Maybe just, first of all, it sounds just like words, perhaps. And you you, you consider them, try to visualize them, consider them in their, their suffering, in their happiness, in their everydayness in their carrying their karma, having to live with themselves, being with themselves. If you get the real three-dimensional sense of another person, uh, I, don't, I don't know, to me always something comes up of a benevolent nature. I mean, what, what is surprising or is, is shocking is to lose that. And I only lose that when I start to stereotype people, caricature them, oh, he's one of those. She's like that, you know. And this person, this wonderful, changing, mutable being like me becomes just a fixed image, you know. And then that's when one loses benevolence, in my, my, my experience, you yeah. And when we come out of that, then some sense of sympathy, compassion for their, their, their limitations, um, equanimity, Gladness and, and loving kindness come. So this is gladdening to see that one's mind can do this. <coughs> Recollections. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, so this is the first level of it, you might say, through deliberate thought. Um, very often uh, devotional practices are a source of gladness which is a direct heart experience Mm, which again some people find difficult because perhaps uh, we don't you know we've got 
a mistrust of imagery or religious ceremonies as being something that's kind of superstitious or you're, you're sort of frog-marched into, you know, that you, you've got to do this and believe in it. Uh, so that, you know, there's been a severe loss of faith in organized religions over the past century or so. So this, this channel can be difficult for people. But uh, devotion, you know, is, comes from the real sense of the sacred. You know, like when we remember our birth and our death, then in a way this is the doorway to the sacred. We remember, you know, the, the inevitable um, suffering that people experience. This to me is a doorway to the sacred when we recollect, you know, the power of the mind to rise above its circumstances. These are, these are ways in which we recollect the sacred. You know, and our sense of the thing that we, uh, our greatest treasure, I feel, is, is our ability to aspire, you know, and experience that rising up of the spirit, even when, you know, we're, as physical circumstances are difficult, and sometimes it's off, sometimes it's because one's physical circumstances are difficult that you get this sense of you know well this is all <laughs> you, know, you you want to start rise up because of it, uh, and then there's a devotion because you begin to sense in that something bigger you might say people experience is bigger uh, than your functioning <coughs> sense of self your little you start to sense your 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 personal self with its little noises and sounds and and kind of mingled moods uh, something small within something much bigger and this is very often a, an experience and then we wow you know and then the devotion to that mm. So this gladdens also. In terms of going what we call meditation, you know, these introspective practices, then the two sources of gladness comes through calming and gladness comes through insight. And gladness, um, or gladdening the mind, um, is uh, certainly in the Anapanasati Sutta really refers to the experience of jhana, of uh, piti, piti and sukha. At least these these experiences. Piti is a sense of of uh, rapture, vitality, which is partly bodily and partly mental. It's a mixture. Um, and it's likened to the experience that a traveler would have who's crossing a desert and they see a large lake of water. You know, there's, there's an emotional, but your body actually goes, wow, you know, you lift up something in you. It's like that. So it has a certain bodily connotation to it. On a, on a, on sort of your nerve, nervous system perks up. And there's, a, there's obviously a, 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 an emotion with that as well, PT. Uh, so, uh, and then sukha is the quality of, of something more comfortable. Piti is a little bit um, 
rocky in a way. It can be ecstatic. A sukha is something more comfortable, like the sense you get to the lake and you you drink your fill of water. Oh, wow, that's really nice. (laughs) Thirst is quenched as sukha. And the idea is that these two gladden the mind because with those, essentially what they do is they, they... they, they, they eradicate the influence of the, what are called the five hindrances, which you probably have encountered and uh, can, you know, it's good job there are only five, isn't it? It seems like there are more sometimes. But essentially, you know, the, the, these things that pollute the mind, this is ill will, craving, sort of slothfulness, dullness, lethargy, uh, restlessness, itchy, restless, and doubt, kind of uh, havering and wavering, an inability to be certain and committed, so we wobble. And these things are called blemishes, or they, they distort and they, they, take, they, they cloud the mind. So with pity and sukha, the, the, it blows these away, and you feel really, wow, you know, your mind feels innately good in itself. You start to experience the mind without the hindrances, and it's, it's like clear, clean, sparkling water rather than algae and slime on it. So this is gladdening the mind. This can be the the pity and sukha primarily come through more the samatha aspects of the practice. Um, although it's, you know you can't really separate calming or samatha from vipassana insight; they generally work together. But the particular quality of samatha is it's, it's about feeling good. It's about steadying, soothing, uh, taking away the, the, the staleness or the restlessness, uh, and just this sense of cleaning, cleaning up. Mm. Yeah. So when we do things like anapanasati, by tuning into a, to a basically uh, benevolent energy and beginning to, to let go of our... Uh, you know the the impulses, the thoughts, the negative feelings, the stuck body states. You begin to brighten up. This is gladdening the mind. And you begin to feel it. So you, this is the third tetrad of, of the progressive instructions on Anapanasati begins with gladdening the mind, steadying it, and gladdening it. And so these are, uh, you know, then in fact it's a, it's a higher kind of gladness because it's not dependent upon it being a nice day or having some interesting thoughts. It's just dependent purely on the you know, kind of internal resource of, of energy and also the skillful work that's been done, you know, that, that you've actually developed a, a sense of attentiveness, uh, restraint, Focusing what's really important, dwelling in it, abiding in it, deepening into it, drinking it in. So all this is required, you know. So it's, a, it's a skillful. It's not just a, uh, you know, laid on you, but but it's, it's skillfully worked out. Mm. So then the mind is is gladdened by that, and you get confident, which is also gladdening. Mm. Gladness also can occur through insight. Insight primarily is about um, 
you might say, you know, recognizing the impermanent, the relative nature of thoughts, feelings, impulses, energies, and being able to, to let go of them, to step free from that, to feel free from that. So you get a sense of, of, uh, of, of freedom. So that also is, is an experience of gladness. But by and large, uh, in order to get that, that freedom, you have to find enough stability or samadhi or samatha to give yourself a firm foundation from which you can actually start to let go of, of the, these uh, thoughts and moods and mind states that we do find just glued to, adhere to, keep, you know, keep coming back. So it, it's, uh, um, it's work bit of work uh, so generally you know you, 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 but you need the gladness to the, you might say the more primary forms or more basic forms of gladness in order to get to the more developed forms of gladness so when you come to meditation it's good to have sense of recollecting you know I've done, I'm doing good I'm, I've done good I have no ill will towards other beings and with something that's beautiful that I trust. So already, you know, you generate those primary conditions of gladness that give you support and uplift to work through some of these residues of doubt or anxiety that we, we, we find ourselves stuck with. You know? So we try to come with a positive attitude towards, uh, towards the, the practice. It's important to remember that because sometimes you get the impression, well, you know, just be mindful of feeling totally miserable. And yeah, you know, but um, it's often the case one isn't mindful of it. One just sits in it. <laughs> it's kind of stupefied state. I mean that that certainly you, know, you want to you don't set up establish mindfulness on being miserable. You establish mindfulness on the positive, or, or, or a firm foundation, so that when you do feel miserable, you can be mindful of it. But it isn't isn't what you look for. You don't say, well, let's make myself miserable in order to meditate. You want to start from a positive, you know, standpoint, and then you can start to deal with the negativity that comes up. Yeah. So remember, glad, gladness and happiness is not to be trivialized. Mm-hmm. And the Buddha was not wasting his time. He didn't. He wasn't into kind of, uh, you know, happy clappy stuff. And he was, you know, he talked gladness because he felt it was f- functionally necessary for awakening. <laughs> And there are many ways to do that, as I hope I've given you some suggestions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think any of the things, you, hopefully we can deepen into some of these as, as the retreat continues. Qigong, <coughs> uh, um, I'm glad that you appreciate that. Um, from a Buddhist perspective... The benefits that I've seen it is uh, in um, in terms of samatha, really, in terms of steadying, calming, uh, uh, and 
gladdening the whole system. So we recognize that the, what mind is, citta, in, in the Buddhist understanding of it, is a little bit more than we normally use the word mind. Normally word mind in kind of Western psychology is, is very much the cognitive faculties, our ability to be rational, cognize, think. And that's an aspect of mind. Um, and in fact, citta produces the kind of uh, energies that, that thought comes out of. But citta, more than that, in, in the Buddhist understanding, is the whole locus or, or, or center of awareness. What does that mean? That means that every moment, whether we're thinking it or not, we're aware, aren't we? You know, whether we've got words for it, you know, we sense something's going on. We sense light, we sense fear, we sense agitation, we sense feeling warm, we sense feeling cold, we sense all kinds of things. So there's an awareness there. And, and you know, and at any particular time, certain phenomena are coming into awareness. So, you know, when I say remember your mother, suddenly she pops in. Where did she come from? You know, she's not there all the time. And yet at this particular time, you, 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 she can enter your mind and you get various thoughts and impressions around her. So the, the location, in other words, the particular boundaries of awareness at any given moment is the broadest definition of citta. Sometimes it's, it's, it's expressed as a, almost an empirical sense of self. You know, one's preoccupations, the boundaries of one's awareness at this particular time. You know, so you can have a citta that is, uh, you know, um, in your computer. You know, so you're totally, the rest of the world's disappeared, there you are with your thing, and your citta is a computer citta. It's just being that, and it's being affected and operating in that sense. Or you could be doing the gardening, you know, or you could be meditating, and, and the boundaries of, your, of what your awareness is focused on and affected by and operating in terms of this domain is citta. So we can see within that, essentially, it is receptive, it picks things up, you know, and it produces things. It picks up impressions, senses, sights, uh, concepts, and it produces uh, happiness, excitement, um, directions, intentions, you know, decisions. It produces all kinds of stuff. So it's, it's, it's the receptive, affective quality in us, you know, on an immaterial level. Now, when we, um, so, so this can, we can be affected by thoughts, profoundly affected by thoughts. We can be affected by uh, sights and sounds. How are we affected by sights and sounds? Because they give rise to certain emotions and memories. So we can say that, you know, something's affected by thoughts, Emotions, memories, we can be affected by bodily sensations. You know, and you feel sick, you've got a migraine, you start to feel depressed. You know, mm-hmm. you sleep, you're affected by that. So all this is the mind, and uh, Qigong is really 
the aim of it from a Buddhist point of view is to produce uh, skillful, helpful bodily effects. You know? So um, that, that's, the, that's the simple thing of it. Mm. Myself, uh, and I think you can obviously use it unskillfully as well, like everything. You get obsessed with energies, and then it gets, it, and then it loses, it loses its value. You know, it becomes a thing in itself. Myself, it began really with I had so much back problems that I couldn't sit without a brace. I used to have a brace to hold my back up on. I used to have to sit with a support because my my back was so shot. So, um, you know, I've been to several osteopaths and chiropractors and all this. I used to go. You know, for a few weeks, then it just back would just collapse again. I had to go to another treatment. So I was doing this all the time. So I felt, well, you know, anything I can try to try and get my body in reasonable shape. So, so somehow or another, this came along. I started doing this, and so it's been a very helpful remedial. Now I can sit quite pretty well. You know? Don't get that the body has become more. Uh, connected more so and, and more more uh, it's healed because of qigong I mean, largely because of qigong and uh, also i found that my meditation i wasn't really um, looking at the buddha's instructions i really wasn't getting much piti sukha jhana that sense that that quality, those qualities were not occurring for me, and I practiced for for like twenty years. I still wasn't really getting it. I thought, what's happening? You know, why? And I recognized that really, you know, I wasn't really aware of the body in the body. So when you look in the, the sutta, it, sometimes it's it, in Satipatthana it says one knows the body in the body. Well, I didn't know the body in the body. I knew the body in my head, you know, as I could kind of, there, you know, it was always very much the head sitting on top of the body, looking at it, figuring out what was going on. And although that was okay for being quite specifically focused on points, it didn't, it wasn't able to get the the receptive quality that gives rise to um, rapture and ease, the feeling quality. It was good at defining you know, that's that, that's that. But it wasn't good at feeling, because that isn't what heads do. <laughs> that's not their job. You know, feeling is another thing. So, um, so again, though I, I wasn't really expecting this, I did find that just deepening the, the, the receptivity from the bodily angle, you know, so what's, what's, what do the hands really feel like in themselves, um, required because I'm quite a heady, well, was quite a heady person, uh, required actually some deliberate um, developing of another faculty. Mm. And I notice things like you see how mindful uh, a tightrope walker is or how mindful in their own way gymnasts can be. They're really, you know, uh, and though when you talk to them, they're pretty much, you know, brain dead, some of them, seemingly. <laughs> But their bodies are very tuned in, you know. So, uh, so you know, you put these together, you recognize how, 
the body has a certain intelligence to it uh, and we can we can make use of that so for me qigong does help help with this um it's one of the things that i use I also found that when I used to do, first do Anapanasati for many years, I always would use a system of focusing on the, the nostrils and trying to focus on the sensations in the, in the nostrils, which is quite a common um, teaching, a common technique, which whatever works, really. If that works, that's fine, great, wonderful. Um, for me, it didn't work very well because I haven't got much... My nose, my nostrils are... Because kind of, I've broken my nose, my nostrils are quite small. So it's a really difficult kind of sensation. You can get it. You know, particularly you get a cold, you can't feel anything. <laughs> so I thought, this can't be the way to enlightenment. Only people with big, big noses can get enlightened, you know. <laughs> so it doesn't seem fair to me. <laughs> you know, you've got a big hook beak with a couple of whopping great holes in it. <laughs> so I thought, well, okay, that's for big-nosed people. <laughs> and so another, you know, then I looked, actually, and then read the sutta, it doesn't say uh, focus on the breath in the nostrils. It just says, be aware of breathing in and out. So it doesn't even say breath, it just says breathing, anapana, breathing in, breathing out. So what if you just kind of abandon the nose altogether and say, well, whether you feel, whether you, you know, you're still breathing, aren't you? Yep. So I started practicing with how do you know you're breathing? Because even if your nose is blocked, if you don't breathe, you drop dead. So you, obviously it's still going on somehow. There must be another way of recognizing it. <laughs> And uh, I noticed that the emphasis the Buddha did place was, was on in and out. Like every one of these sentences he uses is long breath, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out. Every one of these instructions, he always talks about breathing in, breathing out. So it seemed it was that rhythmic in out that he really was pointing to. So this, then that is actually, um, there's an energy there. You breathe in, and you breathe out. You know you're breathing in. You know you're breathing out. You know the difference. The body knows the difference, just as well, isn't it? You know. Imagine just breathing out all the time. Wouldn't live very long. So the Buddha, the body does know breathing in and breathing out, and it knows which one to do. It always gets it right. So why don't you just kind of stop this this thing about trying to do something that isn't actually essential and just breathe with what is basically essential breathing in breathing out what happens how do I know it's happening well I get sort of a flush breathing in and breathing out and uh, so using that more as a basis and I found qigong certainly helped to attune develop a sensitivity towards energies in the, in the body and where the energy was blocked. Now, you know, I've been a bit facetious, really, because, of course, you can breathe in, you can focus on the nostrils, you can also focus in your throat, or your chest, or your belly, all kinds of places. Wherever it feels, your mind naturally feels comfortable there. 
you know. So you get the basic thing and then see where your mind wants to sit with that. That's my advice. Sometimes I find myself going to my nose occasionally, you know, or the back of the nose. Um, so you, as long as it works, but that you don't try to you get the basic thing and then see or get a feeling for where the mind naturally tends to rest in order to, to really receive that flow. You know? Sometimes it's in your chest, sometimes it's even in the back of your nose. Mm-hmm. But you're tuning into the energies of that. Mm-hmm. Helpful. And then the, another instruction the Buddha gives is uh, Sabakaya Patisangwedi, which means thoroughly feeling Patisangwedi the um, the whole body. Now you can't, you know. So how do you feel your whole body when you're just focusing on your nose tip? Boof. Um, hmm. So sometimes, you know, people well think, well, maybe he's got it. Maybe really, what he meant was the body of the breath, which uh, is one way of looking at it. But he thought, well, why didn't why didn't he say so if that's what he meant? Subakaya, so whole body, and uh, recognizing that when you Wherever you focus, whichever point you focus on in your, in your meditation, you breathe in and breathe out, the energy of that does start to move through the entire felt body. You know, the sense of your body, the, the pressure, the warmth, the, you know, the experience of it. You see, the energy of that does kind of shimmer through the whole thing. So again, that's more an energetic... Um, reference than uh, purely an air reference so and I found uh, certainly Qigong helped to um, get me more in touch with that that energetic medium mm. personally so then it gladdens the mind when the mind can, can feel this sense of, of bright energy it's conducive to piti to uh, rapture mm. and uh, confidence and ease so in that perspective, I found it very personally very helpful, um, an asset. Yeah, but of course, you know, the main thing is whatever works. Um, whether it would actually bring about a more introspective and thoughtful state of mind in the secular society, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's, uh, I think what really would help would be more, more sense restraint. <laughs> would help uh, wise teachings uh, you know calming down focusing less frenzy and uh, you know qigong might be part of that but I think we need a little more than that really to to bring that around <clears throat> so let's um, thank you for that I hope that's been useful and let's uh, stretch your legs and we'll have some